Welcome to Founders Uncut, the podcast that goes beyond the romanticized founder journey to discover the moments of vulnerability and doubt that even the most successful founders face. I'm Maria Palma, General Partner at Kindred Capital. Here with me today is Jason from Ori Biotech. Ori has raised over $140 million and is enabling widespread patient access to life-saving cancer therapies. Jason also sits on the board of five other healthcare startups and has been part of three healthcare startup journeys in the past. But these are just the headlines. Let's hear the real story on Founders Uncut. Given the market turbulence we're living through today, I thought it'd be great to start with Jason's first startup blow-up story, which actually happened in the dot-com era. Yeah, it was one of those experiences where I was young enough that it didn't, it wasn't terminal, but it was a great learning experience as those kinds of things often are. Uh, one of the painful memories is being a relatively poor, um, fresh college graduate, uh, having my last paycheck bounce uh, and having put some company expenses on my personal credit card because I was hoping to get things moving and, you know, we were scrappy and uh, left holding the bag uh, for some really fantastic t-shirts uh, that uh, I have about 500 of in a, in a storage unit somewhere. Oh so. man, you still have the t-shirts. You left holding the bill for that. It's like a painful reminder. It is. It's Every time I go there, I'm like, oh, uh, yes, I can feel it uh, emotionally. But oh, yeah, man. but you know, it, you learn as much from those as you do from the successes. So it's a great, it's a funny story now in retrospect. Yeah, it's so true. Um, well, all the founders out there listening, make sure not to leave your employees in that state. So if you do end up <laughs> closing right. the business, hopefully not, please don't leave them with the bill. Um, and you've been, you know, tell us a little bit about from then till now with Ori, you've been a part of a number of journeys. I have, yeah. Um, I was lucky enough to be uh, in the early phases of a pharmaceutical company build, so small molecule pharma, first in the U.S., uh, and then that moved me over to London in 2010. So there were five of us at the beginning in 2006. By the time 2010 rolled around, there were 400 of us, uh, and we were doing a billion in revenue. Uh, and then they, I moved over here to start the European operation. We listed that company in 2014. At that point, we were 1,100 people in 37 countries. Uh, and I was tired uh, after 10 <laughs> years of that journey. And, you know, going through that experience, two essentially startup experiences on two different continents in the same company, um, was a fantastic learning experience for me and an incredible just sort of outcome uh, for the people who are involved and for patients. Importantly, we brought a new, totally new therapy to, uh, to patients around the world, which is awesome. But when you get to a publicly listed company of that size, it's a very different beast, as you know, from a startup or a scale up. And I want to get back to my roots and, and start doing things with uh, entrepreneurs again. And that started in 2016. Yeah, you missed the five-person vibe versus the 1,100. Uh, it's a very different vibe, as you know. Yeah. Um, and, and when you joined Ori, you're actually the first person I've had on the podcast who's not technically a founder. Not I know I said, I'm like, I'm not sure I'm qualified to be <laughs> yeah. on the podcast. You have been the CEO of the company since the seed round. So you've been there from day one. Um, and actually, this is quite common in deep science or tech companies, right? Because the technical founder wants to bring on someone who's going to be the sort of business driver going forward. So talk to us a little bit about how did that play out? How did you meet Ori? How did you decide to join? And I yeah. think you were actually investing first. How did I that was. play out? Yeah, at that point, I was advising companies, working with some VCs, and um, met Ori as a potential investor. And Farland Verage, the founder of the business, very deep scientific uh, chemical uh, engineering background, was a professor at University College London, like incredible expertise. Uh, and when I met him as a potential investor, you know, you see sometimes there's these amazing businesses where there's just a couple of pieces that are missing. You know, you want to have a couple other experience sets on the management team or 
that you really hope will help the, the business be successful. And I had seen probably 3,000 businesses up in, in the prior three years uh, in the health tech space that I had the potential to invest in. Uh, but there was none that was quite sort of grabbed me like, like Ori did. Um, and actually, I was there even pre-seed. So I went at risk and I said to Farlin, I'll invest and I'll take you out to my VC network uh, and we'll see if we can raise a seed round together. And if we can, uh, then we'll see what happens after that. So you know, I think for the founders out there, you, when you bring on advisors, when you bring on partners, when you bring on investors, you want them to love and care about your business as much as you do. Uh, and being able, you know, people that are willing to really put you know, their shoulder to the grindstone and really push with you is super important. There's a lot of people who wanna just kind of advise for an hour a week and get 1% equity and kind of sit on the board. You don't really need that. You need someone that's going to roll their sleeves up and get their hands dirty. And so that that was that kind of early experience with Ori. Totally. And actually, that early relationship, I want to go there for a second, but Farland is incredible. And I actually should say, we're an investor at Kindred in Ori. You're the first portfolio company to have on, so I should mention that somewhere. Yes. Um, and the disclaimer at the bottom. Yeah, there. there's some disclaimer somewhere. But um, yeah, it's Farland's great, and you guys have a great dynamic. But it's you know you didn't know each other before that process. And actually, I think, I don't know the stat, but the very high percentage of startups fail in the first year or two because of co-founder dynamics, whether or not they yeah. knew each other before. So yeah. if you didn't know each other before, how did you go about the process of saying, this is someone I can work with for the next 10, 20 years, and also yeah. you know, can trust? How did you guys figure that out together? Uh, it was a journey for sure. Um, so uh, I really worked very hard to gain Farland's trust. I mean, you know, for him to invite me into the business and have me help him. There's a big step, a big leap of faith that, you know, we didn't really know each other. We got introduced through a mutual colleague, but I was like random Joe Smo off the street, uh, literally. And so I think actually that test period of, we actually ended up fundraising. I met him in late 2018. Uh, the ter first term sheet came in for the seed round in May. So there was a, you know, six, seven month period where we were sort of getting to know each other. I was helping to get the story right and get some of the pieces lined up that we would need to raise. And you, you kind of get that you know, in the trenches experience and you learn how people work. And, um, you know, and I said to him, he is one of the very few founders who I have met who is really incredibly self-aware about this. So we sort of discussed, you know, this is all the things that the CEO has to do. And there's a lot of things in there uh, that, you know, he didn't really want to do or didn't feel like that he was qualified to do or didn't, you know, they weren't what got him out of bed in the morning. And so we kind of looked at roles and responsibilities he was awesome on the tech side, on the scientific side. You know, maybe I could help on operations or commercial or fundraising. And he and I said, you know, I don't care what you call me. You can call me dog dog catcher in chief. Like, you know, it's you know, I don't care what the title is, but this is kind of how I see mm -hmm. these are the responsibilities that have to happen for the business. And he kind of went away and slept on it and said, you know what, I want you to be CEO. And that, you know, shows his maturity and self-awareness, because there's a lot of ego often tied to the title. Mm -hmm. totally. Not the fact that you're just, you know, I founded this business, it's mine. But you know, saying to someone else, I want you to take this on, and I'm, I think I'm better to do this, shows a huge amount of maturity on his part. Yeah, and I think even just having the honest conversation, right? I was having a chat with a founder the other day who said, like, the tougher the conversation is, the more you need to have it sooner yeah. and, and as transparently as you can. And I think it just clears out a lot of other yeah. questions when you're able to do that. It is. And, and I think, you know, we, from the very beginning, have been open, honest communication. Like, I'm an American, so I can get away with it a little bit. I can sort of say what I think, and the Brits are a little <laughs> bit more circumspect, as you know, in their, in their means of communication. So I sort of say things, and I say, well, you know, hit me with it. Like, tell me how you're feeling, and we've developed a very good rapport. 
but it, it was a it was a journey over time for sure. Yeah, I am. Um, I'm American and worked for Israelis for a period of time. I I tend to be. Far further direct than I should be. Right between um, the eyes. Here you go. Yeah, okay. but uh, yeah, I think that's a great point. How do you think about that then as that translates into culture, right? Like, oh my gosh. you guys are both really important leaders in the company. How does that translate into how you built the culture? I mean, it's been great in that, you know, even though we didn't start the business together, we very quickly were sort of sharing a mind about how the business needed to go forward. Uh, and I mean, you know, I say uh, culture is more important than strategy. Like in this day and age, people believing in what you're doing and, you know, we're all going to work hard. We're in a startup environment. It's dynamic. It's fast paced. But people have to love it. They have to love not only the people they work with, but they have to love what you're, the meaning that they're, you know, what ultimately is the end game you're trying to reach for. And it's been really interesting. So Ori's really kind of come of age, matured in, in the COVID pandemic. So this kind of building a culture in a hybrid organization that now stretches two continents, it's been a real uh, interesting uh, yeah. couple of years for, for the company. You mentioned culture being more important than strategy, and I've actually heard you say that before mm -hmm. somewhere else. I think you actually said the first time belonging mm. is more important than strategy. And how do you think you make employees feel like they actually belong somewhere? Yeah. Um, I really work incredibly hard, and we've been working very hard on open communication, trust, and feedback in that you know, I'm going to give you feedback or you're going to give me feedback. And it's because I want you to do the best you can be, the best you can be. I want you to have the biggest impact you can have. If we have this North Star, this mission as a company, you mentioned it, enabling widespread patient access to life-saving cancer therapies, it's easy to get excited about that. We're having a massive impact on patients. But how do we get there? What kind of environment do I want to work in? What kind of, you know, day-to-day? -day? And really kind of it's the combination of the culture we're trying to build around trust and feedback, but also... Um, I read Reed Hastings' book, No Rules, Rules, about kind of the Netflix culture, which is an interesting case study in the culture build. Um, one of the things I took away from that is this sort of um, the concept of talent density. And everyone wants to bring in the best talent. No one seek, goes out to seek, uh, to hire D players. Like, that's not kind of how the world works. But you have to be very, very structured and very disciplined about hiring if you want to attain and retract. Uh, retain and, and attract the best talent uh, because it, ultimately that makes a difference. Which is key. If you're not retaining and attracting the best talent regardless of what you're building in, it's not going to be successful. No. Um, but it is a very emotional thing that you're touching, right, mm -hmm. compared to some companies. So just to give the audience a little bit of color of what that looks like because it does shape who you bring on as employees, talk, tell us a little bit about Emily Whitehead. Yeah, so Emily has been an inspiration for the whole industry. Um, she was the very first uh, child to receive CAR-T therapy. Uh, in the U.S. at University of Pennsylvania uh, Hospital. Uh, CAR-T therapy is a new generation of therapies that actually takes a human's uh, immune cells, genetically reprograms it, and then you return those back to that individual. Uh, and that becomes a therapeutic versus a, a tablet off the shelf or chemotherapy. Or, so it's actually a living medicine that's been personalized for an individual patient. So incredible science that we can even do that. And uh, Emily um, and her parents, uh, Tom and Carrie, went through a battle. She was uh, for several years, I think it was two or three years. And unfortunately, they had run kind of through the treatment options. She had been through and she multiple was like, rounds. How old of, at this she time? was about seven. Uh, and so she'd run through all the treatment options. And the doctor said, You should take Emily home on hospice and make her comfortable for her last you know, week or two. And Tom and Carrie said, we're just not accepting that outcome. Uh, and they, I mean, you, you know, you kind of like, when I, Tom, uh, we're, a quick aside, they were over actually three weeks ago at, our, at our team meeting. I know. I'm going to talk about something else. I'm pregnant either. Oh my God. <laughs> we're going to talk about something else. 
but it's good. It's good. Go what's, ahead. What's awesome is it's that they were here three weeks ago and at our quarterly team all hands, which goes back to the culture question is like, how do you build a culture in a remote world? You, that kind of getting the team together and investing in that is incredibly important because the, the dynamic in that room and the people who are like, oh my gosh, it's Emily is the reason why we do what we do. Because yeah. we want to see another thousand or 10,000 or 100,000 Emily's in the future. But that story of, you know, they were at their wits end. There was no other options. They called uh, one of our advisors, Bruce Levine, at, at um, Children's Hospital of, of Philadelphia. And a clinical trial opened that day. She was the very first patient uh, to be dosed. And it wasn't all smooth sailing. So she was in the hospital for th two or three weeks. This is an experimental therapy. It's a clinical trial. She was on death's door about a week after they gave her the first, uh, the first CAR-T therapy. Uh, and then she turned around. And on May 10th, so it was only a couple of days ago, she celebrated 10 years cancer-free. So she's amazing. essentially, she's effectively diagnosed as cured for cancer. She's 17 now, driving, about to go to college, an awesome young lady. That is incredible. It um, is. So I feel like with a mission like that, it just must be easier to attract talent and there's been no more important war for talent than this current moment in time. So it must be easy to attract talent. But what is the flip side of having a business that touches people's lives so directly? You know, is it is it hard for you to kind of stay optimistic sometimes when you see the reverse of like people actually passing away? Or how? what is the flip side of that coin? Um, I mean, a random aside is it's never easy to tra attract talent. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it is that people believe in the mission, but it's so competitive, as you said, and, and we're recruiting cell biologists and, and data scientists who are like the most competitive kind of fields out there. So uh, it does help that we've got this bigger mission. Um, the flip side of the story, unfortunately, is that in the last five years, since these therapies became available, we've only been able to treat less than 2% of the patients who could benefit from these therapies uh, with them because they're so expensive and they're hard to get and they're hard to make. Uh, so that, you know, you do the math, the other 98% have a bad outcome. And that means you know the vast majority of patients who reach that late stage have been through all of those options before chemo hasn't worked or transplant hasn't worked. Um, there's not a lot of options for them now. And so you know one of the reasons that we are in such a hurry as an organization, um, you know if things go well from that seed round we talked about in 2019 to first product launch will be four years, four to five years, which is lightning fast in our world. Yeah. Um, other you know technologies that we know of in our space take 15 years to come to market, but. Every year, 10 million people are diagnosed with 10 million people a year are diagnosed with cancer. We can't wait. You know, patients need this technology to come to market. So we're in a hurry, and we'll do everything we can to get it to to patients as fast as possible. Yeah, no pressure. I'm sure no that, pressure. Yeah. I'm sure you don't feel that pressure anywhere. <laughs> um, Not a lot of sleep. That's yeah, okay. exactly. Um, you also mentioned the hybrid culture. I want to go back to that. I think a lot of founders right now are thinking about how to not only set up hybrid offices, but like enable true culture across them. And most founders have a choice. They can decide if they want an office. They can decide if they want full remote teams. Uh, you don't have a choice. If you're going to have a wet lab and you're going to have science as part That's of your it. business, you kind of have to have people in the wet lab. So how do you think about that? I mean, sorry that you didn't have a choice, but now that you don't have that choice and you're really building hybrid, how do you actually think about enabling the culture correctly across both of those? No, it's a great question. If anyone uh, watching develops wet lab by Zoom, I'm, I'm psyched to talk about that innovation. So I would love to be a customer. Uh, but yeah, unfortunately, <laughs> you can't do biological ex experiments over the internet. So um, we do have a physical presence in London. We've just actually started, opened a lab in Princeton, New Jersey, uh, and we have 50 odd people sort of globally. So it, it is quite an interesting dynamic where some of the team is physically present together all the time, four or five days a week in the lab, they're doing experiments, they're working together. So 
maybe a third of the team sees each other regularly. And there's a culture that kind of builds up around, you know, an individual location even. Uh, and then myself and other members of the management team are dotted around the world. You know, we're sort of, some of us are in London, some of us are in Philadelphia and the East Coast. Um, so, I mean, I think we've really made the, the explicit decision to invest in that kind of face-to-face -face team experience. So, as I said, two weeks ago when, when the Whitehead family was with us, we had 55 of our team all together face-to-face, -face, flew them from everywhere they are to be physically together for three days. Uh, and to actually invest in that experience and to have it and to be focused on ensuring that you do that. Because it's easy to say, oh, it's expensive. You know, it costs 50 grand or 75 grand to fly people all over the world. But what's the cost of not doing it? And, you know, we had people there who, that was their very first day in Ori. Mm -hmm. Or they hadn't even started yet. They'd accepted an offer and they're not starting until June. And like, you have to come to this meeting because when you walk into the room, you feel the culture, you see it. You look around, you're like, these people are awesome. I want to work with these people. This is going to make me better. We're going to, be, we're going to achieve big things. And that, the value of that, it's almost priceless. Yeah, I think you're right. It's the cost of not doing it that you really need to think through. Yeah. And you've sat on multiple sides of this, right? You've been an investor, a board member, a founder. How, across seeing all those vantage points, what have you learned and what, you know, what do you do differently? Yeah. Um, I thought being an investor full-time was quite interesting. So... I thought it, I was like, great, I get to work with lots of founders and help with lots of businesses, and this sounds really exciting. Um, I found that because I was had that kind of operational background in my blood, it was very hard to sort of be emotionally distant from the business case and look at the deck and look at the model and say, well, this could work, or this couldn't work. I really wanted to help and get stuck in. And, um, and you know, one of the things I learned is that oftentimes technical founders in particular, they focus very much on the technology our technology is great and it does this and this is, you know, because that's my domain expertise. Uh, and very impolitely, I often say, people don't give a shit about your technology. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, they care about the problem you're solving. Is the problem big enough? And is someone willing to pay for the solution that you're developing? And so it takes a whole spin on, I don't really care how you get there. Like, I don't really care about the details of your mm -hmm. technology. I want to know that it works, that it's you can build a mode around it, that, mm -hmm. you know, the customer is going to want it. And so it's flipping the story around. And, and we talk a lot when I talk work with founders now and with my, the teams that I sit aboard, on the board of, I work a lot on the story of their business. You know, because as you know, we're all human beings. The VCs sitting on the other side of the Zoom call or the other side of the table, they're human beings. They're not immune to a good story. I mean, human beings throughout history have, that's how we've conveyed history and how we've created meaning and context. So I'm not saying a story, you're making it up. It's about how you tell the story of your company. What yeah. are you doing? Why are you doing what you're doing? Why are you the right team to deliver? All of the pieces that the VC in that first conversation is trying to, trying to understand has to be weaved together in a way that makes sense, that's compelling, that you, know, you connect to emotionally and you know, as, a, as a human being versus you know, it's just another deck. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's the same components no matter what. It's but how you spin the narrative and tell the story of those components. And I think, to your point, you forget that when you're fundraising, the other person on the side of the table is probably on their like, also 13th Zoom call. Exactly. I remember a founder who pitched me not so long ago. She just started it completely different. She just said, like, it was, she was selling into corporations, and she just said, ask me three questions. Do you know X? Do you know how big this market is? Do you know what this person does? And she just started with questions. And yeah. I was like, oh, this <laughs> is different. That's interesting. Um, so wait, you forget, this is a human, yeah, very yeah. human business. What yeah. percentage, if you had to subscribe a percentage or ascribe a percentage to fundraising, would you say percent storytelling versus percent technology or kind of like the core of the business? Um, I think the earlier 
you invest to the earlier stage, the more it is about the story and about the team, of course, as you know, because uh, Kindred's an early stage investor. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's about the sequence of data points that sort of are shared between yeah. the two parties, right? So if you're later stage and you've got commercial traction and you've already raised a couple rounds and the VC knows people that are on your cap table, mm-hmm. that's a different conversation from, I really want you to believe in what I'm doing and believe in this team. And, and so that story is really, really important early, seed, pre-seed, certainly even up to series A. And then once you start to have some of those other data points, the story sort of translates from, you know, this is the right team to deliver and here's the proof. Here's the, yep. the reason to believe is we've got this customer and that data point and this is happening and this is good. And so, you know, I think that it evolves over time. But as you know, it's it's all yeah. about people. It's all but about you trust the people to deliver. It's totally it's the team, but yeah. also like the evidence as you as you get into different stages, the evidence supporting that story is higher. That's true. Exactly. Um, what do you think is the absolute worst part about being a founder and being a, being a CEO of a company? Like, what is the most challenging part? Um, that is a tough one. Um, I, I do love it. I love building. I'm, I, I, you know, you go through all these kind of like psychometric things mm-hmm. through your career and trying to learn about yourself. And yeah, give me the best part first. What, what someone said to me is, "You're a builder." And I'm like, "Well, yeah, I, I, I never thought of it in that through that lens." Uh, but I do love building things, and, and you know, one of my biggest fears in life is living an inconsequential life where you just sort of disappear from the planet after 80 years, and everyone forgets you're there. Uh, and so I think because of that, you know, being it's it's tough to shut off. It's tough to you know, when we were fundraising, certainly, or, you know, because we're in London, we start London time, you know, whatever, 8 a.m., and then I've got two kids, 14 and 11, and I want to be there for breakfast and make sure they get off to school, and I want to be there for dinner and make sure that, you know, I, I get to build that relationship also. So I'll work till, you know, whatever, 5.30, and we'll have dinner, and then I'll come back on at 9 p.m. Um, UK time for the West Coast swing, as I like to call it, uh, to West Coast U.S. from 9 to midnight. So, and it's tough to know to kind of where to draw the line and where the boundaries should be. And, and you know, when you're in, fun, in a fundraising mode for six or eight months or however long it takes, you can sort of say, like, I'm going to keep the gas pedal and I'm going to run into the red uh, as long as I can. Um, but, you know, I sit on the board, as you said, of a couple of companies. And I said this to one of my founders two weeks ago. I said, you know that you are not your company. Like, your self-worth, your worth as an individual is not the same as whether or not your company is successful. And being able to emotionally distance yourself from that and think, because you're so, I mean, it is, you almost come, you know, almost like a cyborg. You like merge with your company and it's you as a founder and, you know, even as an early employee. But the fact of whether or not that succeeds or fails doesn't mean that you've, you are a failure if it fails. You take it, you, you learn from it, as I did in 2000. You take those learnings forward and you do something else great. You know, it's, it's not life or death, hopefully. Uh, for most teams. No one wants to fail. I mean, we're all scared to death of it, but it's going to happen to some of us, to many of us. Learn from it, pick yourself up, go run at the next goal. I mean, I think that, and keeping that perspective as a founder or as an early stage CEO is incredibly difficult because you just get wrapped in, into it so tightly and everything you do, your every waking, waking minute, you're spending thinking about it. I'm so glad you said that. It's just such an important piece for founders. It's really hard for people to separate themselves from the business and actually even really hard for them to just remember to take care of themselves, right? You're constantly burning yourself out, as you mentioned. Exactly right. You know, I, I actually, one of the founders that I work with and sit on the board of the company, I was looking at him, I'm like, are you feeling okay? Like, are you taking care of yourself? Are you getting to the gym? Are you sleeping enough? And he said, you know what, I'm, I'm really not. And, you know, like 
basically thanks for asking like because you know we sort of don't give ourselves permission to be like you know what i'm i'm just not on my a game i'm you know too tired i'm burning the candle at both ends and what i said to him is you know if you don't take care of yourself you can't take care of the business and ultimately mm -hmm. you're never going to be your best for the business if you're run down if you're tired if you're not getting to the gym you're not eating right so i try and you know take some of my own medicine and heed that advice and you know get to the gym a couple times a week and and do those things so that you can give your all to the business and, and it's the only way otherwise it's just too easy to to burn the candle at both ends and just you know run in the red for too long and, and it affects you personally but also the business outcome yeah it's also hard to remember that though right to create those spaces yeah it is more sustainable in the long term but in the moment it always feels like you're running to your point but yeah it's kind of like that when you're in the airplane put on your oxygen mask before you can help others like <laughs> if you don't have oxygen in the middle of the the crash you're not going to be able to help anyone it's a great else. analogy it's exactly right yeah you got to take care of yourself and, the, and then you can take care of the other things you have to well, I cannot think of a better way to end the show. So take care of yourself and try not to, to the extent possible, associate your personal success as a human and your self-worth with your business. So thank you so much Indeed. for being with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks so much for being with us, Jason. If you want to join a great mission-driven company or hear more about Emily's story or anything else for that matter on the Ori podcast, please go to oribiotech.com. For more stories like this, go to www.kindredcapital.vc forward slash founders uncut. And as always, if you're a founder and the journey is hard, you're not doing anything wrong and you're not alone. Being a founder is just hard. Even the most successful founders face fear, doubt, and unbelievable difficulties that never make the headlines. Thanks for being with us today. And if Jason's story resonated with you, join us again on Founders Uncut. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the aging process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford, and Craig Revel-Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.